I want you to meet a graphic novelist. His name is Pat Grant, and his most recent book is called The Grot. It's a story about two brothers trying to make their way in a dystopian swamp city. If you're holding a copy of this book in your hands, you are, as you're about to discover, very lucky. This is the Sydney Review of Books podcast. I'm the SRB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Welcome to our podcast about Australian books and writers. It's like high stakes where you're making a decision about, oh, how many uh, flecks of sweat are going to be on this forehead? Or how many teeth are in this mouth? How many dots do I need on the floor to give the impression of a dirty floor? In this episode, Pat explains what happened during the seven years it took him to make the grot. What does it take to persevere for so long? What kind of work goes into making a graphic novel? You might think that getting the finished pages to the publisher was the final hurdle for a massive project like this. But then COVID struck. So we'll also hear about the challenge of getting copies of your own book in the midst of a global pandemic. lying in bed at night, having a stirring in your soul that this object might one day exist. And then you arrive home, you pull into your driveway and you get out of your car and there's a big stack of boxes on the doorstep. You know, the books have arrived in your life. And this thing that you had imagined has become a real thing. And it's not just a real thing in terms of it being one object. It's not like you're in your shed and you made a chair it's like you're in your shed and you made a chair and then suddenly there were thousands of chairs that's a magical feeling when you tear open the box and you get this book out and you hold it in your hands and it has real weight you're getting the experience that a reader might get and that's your reward that's what you get In graphic novels, you often find authors understand the making of a book is part of the way they communicate as authors. You know those little notes that you see in the front of a book? You know, it's like publishing information, copyright information, all that stuff, ISBN numbers. All that I hand wrote with some grey ink and a brush. I even like to have a little handwritten box that surrounds the barcode so that the only thing that doesn't come from a movement of my hand is the actual barcode itself. Care taken in all of those little areas really helps the audience feel like they've got this object that is, that is an expression of a single author. So what is the story of The Grot? You've got this book in your hands, you open it up, and immediately you're introduced to a family. In particular, you're introduced to these two brothers, and they're sitting on top of an outlandish... Mad Max vehicle, except for the vehicles powered by indentured servants pushing some kind of pedals. And these two brothers are heading off on a kind of gold rush adventure. You see, it's the future. Things are pretty grim. Industrial civilization has degraded considerably. But there's this new discovery that's been made a mysterious algae that scientists think could become a new energy source and could restore human civilization back to the glory days. 
And this algae has been discovered in the north of Australia. And if you can get a little bit of it in a coffee cup or something, you can sell it to a venture capitalist for a fortune. Millions of people are heading to this dank swamp called the Falter Swamp where the algae has been discovered. And these two brothers, one of them's called Lippy, one of them's called Penn. They're kind of like upper middle class brats. They're going to join the algae rush, but they're not prospectors. They're not going to be uh, getting dirty trying to actually find this algae. Instead, they're going to get rich setting up a business on the fringes of, of all this activity because everybody knows that wherever there's a gold rush, the only person that really gets rich is the person selling picks and shovels. So these two boys and their mother arrive in this city and it's this heaving, disgusting place. It's kind of like a grotesque mining town, but it also might be like a Bitcoin Reddit page or something like that. It's this sort of place built on lies, half-truths and deception. And it's the perfect habitat for shysters and con artists, snake oil merchants and hustlers. What's the relationship between Lippy and Penn like? So there's a page in the book where I unpacked the character's bags. Penn's bag is very neatly packed. His clothes are all immaculate. He's got dope sneakers and uh, a pair of uh, replica Ray-Bans. He's a bit fresh, that guy. And Lippy's, Lippy's a total nightmare. You know, he's got all sorts of nerdy technical equipment and a jar of prunes, but his shirts are all gross and nothing's packed properly. Lippy looks like a really gross teenage Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a guy you would trust instantly, but he's a bit of a slob. He's got a bit of a cheesy aroma. And um, Penn, he's got the swagger of a teenage Joseph Gordon-Lovett, but also a bit of the uh, rakish kind of attitude in Mr. Wickham of Pride and Prejudice. Penn is forward-leaning, ambitious, clever, brash, and Lippy is uh, cautious and a bit fussy. Penn is determined to have as many great experiences possible, maybe make some fast cash. And Lippy just wants to do things sensibly. He wants to start a solid business and he wants to maintain a respectable public image. They just have attitudes to life that are utterly incompatible. And that tension is the central tension of the book. So there's this moment in the book where they're travelling across the swamp on this unwieldy pedal-powered boat. There's this dramatic reveal where the mist parts and they can see the skyline of this decrepit city and they all look up and gasp and the mother's looking up and she's saying, look at this shithole. <laughs> and she's sort of saying, like, uh, you know, it's got no infrastructure, no groundwater, and four million starving people just clinging to it like a greasy rock. And uh, she says, what sort of morons would think that this was a good place to build a city? And Lippy says nothing, and then Penn says, well, I'm pretty sure it's morons like us. When I draw, I draw with my left hand. All of my drawings are done with rich black India ink and I'm, you know, I'm dipping in the ink bottle or I'm dipping it into one of the ink wells that my sweetheart Alicia made for me. Unless you're really careful, you're going to make a total mess. 
if you were to read a text like a comic book page, panel by panel, you kind of move from left to right across the page if you're reading a Western idiom. But I always start on the right side of the page and I work backwards. And over the years, I've trained myself to write backwards. And I've found that I make fewer spelling mistakes when I write backwards. At the moment, I've got a problem called uh, repetitive strain injury. So when I draw, I have to spend 20 minutes warming up. So I sit by the sink, I get a bucket of warm water and I dip my hand in and then I swing my arm around to fill my hand with blood. And then I uh, stretch it back and forth and I knead it like dough. Then I shake it in a silly sort of way. That's part of my morning routine. That's how I treat my left hand. And then uh, my right hand gets ignored. It's a less talented, it's a less valuable hand. Making a graphic novel takes forever. A page that you might read in 15 seconds might have 30 to 40 or 50 hours of labour that goes into that page. I started writing this book in 2012. And at that time, I was working on a PhD at Macquarie University. And I wrote the entire book on the train. I started writing it as a script. I got to the end of that and I stopped and started again. And then I started writing it as a novel and I got about 80,000 words into that. And then I stopped and then I started again and I started writing it as a screenplay using actual screenwriting software this time. When my PhD candidature finished in early 2014, The Grot suddenly became my A project. It was the thing that my whole creative practice was driven towards. And I needed a job, so I got a job as a stevedore down at Port Kembla in Wollongong. I was beginning to draw the comic, and meanwhile I was doing night shift, you know, wearing yellow high-vis, taking cars and bits of timber and steel off from giant boats down at the harbour. When you're beginning to draw the comic, it sounds like you just start with panel one and then go to panel two. It's wildly more complicated than that. Actually, I drew the comic for at least two years before I ever made a drawing that made its way into the book. So what did I do during that time while I was drawing? Well, first of all, I had to come up with like the design. So I was filling sketchbooks with hundreds and hundreds of design drawings, character designs, place designs, how do the vehicles work, what is the visual vibe of the story, what kind of materials am I going to be using. And so I did that for several months and then I had to do some test pages. So I sat down and I spent two or three months translating just one scene from my script into comics. Those were the first pages of the book. So I've got 12 pages of the book drawn and then the really important and difficult work starts and that is going through the script and translating it into a visual script. I call it a thumbnail draft and so I had to draw the entire book start to finish rough scratchy drawings on grid paper. That's the real drafting of the book so that took about a year to do. Meanwhile I quit my job as a stevedore because I I couldn't do night shift anymore because I had a baby boy called Lenny. I started working at a university as a teacher in uh, design and creative writing and animation. And so now I'm juggling 
parenthood and really quite demanding job as like a, a sessional casual teacher and then trying to get this book drafted. And then I had to do a whole second draft and that took another six months. And so at this point, it's early 2016. So I've been working on the book for four years and I really haven't got a lot of finished work to show for it. Once all of my drafting was complete and I was happy with the book, I had to sit down and start what I call the grind. And the grind is doing the finished art the readers are actually going to see. Every page takes somewhere between 20 and 30 hours. And and don't forget that I've already spent five or six, seven or 10 hours on each page prior to the grind. But the job is to sit down with a blank piece of paper and create a new page of finished art, ideally one a day, but it never works out that way. And uh, meanwhile, my career at the university is going really well. I'm getting more and more work and parenthood's going wonderfully. But there's a new problem that's arrived in my life, which is burnout. Sometimes I'll have a month or two or three months put aside over, say, a summer to draw 100 pages of comics. And I'm so fried that I can only do 30. And that's when I have to send my publisher an email saying they'll have to wait another year. That's when I have the saddest, darkest times. And I have to listen to musical theatre just to get through the day. Musical theatre. Any even. How good's any? <laughs> In the grind, the day-to-day process is get a piece of grid paper. You draw the, the comics page on grid paper with a coloured pencil. And then you get a light box and you trace that drawing onto a, a nice new blank piece of Bristol board. And that takes hours. And then you get the Black India ink out and you go over the drawing once again, but with a brush. And then the last stage is um, scanning the artwork and then reprinting it on some uh, really expensive watercolor paper and then doing the coloring. That process is incredibly laborious, incredibly detail-oriented, and it can be a daunting experience. And you're looking at the size of the book that you're working on. You can feel like you've just put a drop in the ocean or half a brick in a giant wall. When you get the brush out, what you're doing is making a commitment. How many flecks of sweat are going to be on this forehead? Or how many teeth are in this mouth? Or are these big fingernails or small fingernails? Or uh, how many dots of texture do I need on the floor to give the impression of a dirty floor? So all of those decisions are ultimately made while you've got the brush out and the ink is sort of drying in front of you. And it's also drying on your brush. (laughs) I was in the grind period all through 2016, 2017, 2018, while my son learned to walk, talk, and karate kick. I had a second son at the end of 2018. When when that little guy arrived, things got even more difficult, but that was my last year. So I finished the last drawing in October of 2019, and I sent it off to the publisher on a rainy night about 2 a.m., And then the book went off to print. I've always believed in the power of pop culture. I've always believed that the best kind of art that one can contribute to is something that is easy to find, it's cheap to buy, and everyone can get a hold of it. So for me, the greatest pursuit for a storyteller is to create something that's accessible and affordable, but is unflinchingly truthful and profound and honest. The kind of story that I want to tell is a story like Dirty Dancing, you know? 
something that declares to the world that it's entertainment, that it could be a kind of trash, but then it creeps up at you and presents itself as, as a kind of literature. I love the film Dirty Dancing, my favourite movie. I keep coming back to it and it keeps sort of telling me new things about how the world works. With The Grot, I'm trying to tell a story for somebody who maybe hasn't finished high school yet, somebody who's maybe hasn't read a novel yet. I think it's really important for smart storytellers to try and serve that kind of readers. And I'd like to see more, especially in Australia, I'd like to see more Australian authors and storytellers embracing entertainment. My first book, Blue, was a short graphic novel that came out in 2012. It was also a book about teenagers. And it's about these spotty little grommets who are growing up in a working-class coastal town. They're coming up together and they're ultimately teaching each other how to be racists. It's a story about whiteness and race in small-town Australia. So when I think back on the time I spent making Blue... Oh, that was a wonderful, dull, productive time in my life. I spent two years working on nothing but that book and it was really difficult and I had to teach myself a completely new way of working and a completely new technical workflow. But my memory of the time was uh, winter in Melbourne, getting up early at 6.30am, riding my bike to my studio on Leslie Street. It was this big warehouse but we had built a tent out of clear plastic inside the warehouse and we had a big heavy uh, door so it was like a disgusting yurt and we cranked the heaters up inside and it was so warm and I just had this blissful experience of sinking into a project and getting to a space that is incredibly productive. What I learned then is that if you want to work on a graphic novel you really need a lot of studio days side by side. That time in my life I had one job to do, one thing to think about and 600 days side by side to do that thing. So you know how I'm interested in con artistry? I was very conscious I was inclined towards con artistry and I realised that I was good at getting grants because I approached it with uh, (laughs) an intrinsic lack of integrity. And I got a couple of grants and then I applied for a PhD just so that I could get a scholarship. So for that first two years, I believed that I was going to live on my PhD scholarship for two years and then ditch it. So that's how I got two years. That's how I got those 600 days in the studio. I'm sitting here telling you that I believe in pop culture. And one of the tenets of pop culture is that it sustains itself. It should pay for itself. Um, yeah, I'm also telling you that I lived on um, I lived on this sort of literary prestige, you know, like I, I lived on arts grants and uh, university scholarships while I was doing this. That is a huge contradiction. But I would say, for me, the honesty is in the production of work that's accessible to all people. That's the goal I'm trying to serve with as much honesty and integrity as I can. But the funding of it has zero honesty and zero integrity. That's just me trying to hustle anyone who I can to give me some money. When I do get a grant, I don't actually spend it on me living. 
I spend it all on making the thing possible. So I got $15,000 from the Australia Council, but I didn't spend it on making blue. I spent it on printing it. One of the things about my own personality that I've been struggling with over the last 10 years is I understand myself to be a person of integrity, but I also understand myself to be a person of some cunning as well. Those two things sometimes are incompatible. <laughs> and so so for me to put these two characters who are both different sides of my personality into this environment where if you're going to be a charlatan or a hustler or a snake oil merchant, you could really succeed. You could really do well, but you could also become the victim of someone else's cunning. That's kind of one of the things I'm trying to explore and come to terms with through the whole process of creating this book. Over the years, while I'm working this book, I'm realizing how how my ability as a hustler is the reason I can do the book. To get a day in the studio and to get one page of the graphic novel done, I've got to use all of my abilities as a strategic thinker to get my life to work like that. And, and what that means is that I'm being really strategic at my day job so that I have a clear head to work on the book on a Friday. I'm really strategic in the way I negotiate with my sweetheart about how our family runs so that I get a bit of time to work on the comic. I'm really strategic with my publisher so that my personal goals can be met with a comic. I'm really strategic about the way I'm funding the project, the way I'm conducting myself in different relationships in, in the industry. And I don't necessarily feel comfortable about all this. I don't, I'm not proud of all this, but these are the things that I've chosen to do in order to get a book done. When I pick up any graphic novel, I'm totally astonished by the fact that it actually exists the amount of work that's gone into every single panel, just the sheer difficulty of making it is apparent to me. I just get this intense sense of pride. But with the grut, there's another feeling, and I think that's like a kind of anger. And I'd never felt this before. And I'm sure there are other writers who might be listening to this who, who might know what this feeling is. But it's like this feeling of something that has taken so much from you and it's made you made you do things that you didn't want to do and made you become a person that you might not have wanted to become and you're not sure whether it's ever going to give back. And then the book went off to print just in time for the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID has uh, really made the release of this book really difficult because it's interrupted the way this book, which is published by an American publisher, makes its way into the homes and hands of people that I love in Australia, which is, for better or worse, where my book succeeds or fails. Back in the, the lost world before the pandemic, if you're a bookstore owner, you would maybe listen to a podcast about me talking about this book and you'd go on to Penguin Random House site and you'd order a book for your bookstore and they'd check to see if there was any in the warehouse. Ah, no, there's none in the warehouse. That's okay. We'll send that order to the States where they have a giant warehouse and they'll chuck those books on a plane and those books will be in that bookstore in four days' time. So that was the supply chain the pandemic has messed that all up. And now uh, now the books are sort of arriving in strange, small numbers on boats that take four months to get here. 
sometimes you, you just encounter people who you think the book might be for them. And it's, and it's a really powerful thing for an author to go to somebody and just put it in their lap and say like, I don't have a business card, but I have this. This is who I am. This is what I do. And if the story's doing its job, it's going to leap into their brains, you know? I think quite a lot of authors I know, they, what they want is like a really good review from a really like hard-hitting critic in the monthly or something, or the New Yorker even, I don't know. But you know what I want? I want to see a 12-year-old on the bus handing the book to another 12-year-old and going like, you should read this book. It's like, it's good. It's, that's to me, that's my marker of success. And uh, it feels like it's a tough thing for the book to build momentum on those particular terms if the book's not around. A graphic novel is so magical. When I hold one, I just can't believe that it actually happened. The multidisciplinarity of this kind of storytelling is mind-boggling. So one of the challenges of making comics is that you have to sort of think about it on all these different levels. If you're working in the long form, you've got to think about this grand story structure, but you also have to think about the visual language and how it's playing out on the page, which is sort of how a novelist might think, thinking about the way a sentence plays out. But for a comic book artist, you're thinking about how the sequence of images communicates space and action and expression and things happening in the scene. But then... You also have to think about it in this micro, micro detail, which would be like the novelist thinking about how each letter S is drawn. <laughs> so, so you have to think about, okay, how many, um, how many flecks of sweat do I need to draw on that forehead? How many bricks do I have to draw on that wall to give the impression of bricks? Where is the light source in this scene so that I know to project the shadows in the right direction that's in continuity with the last drawing and the next drawing? Did I get that hand right? Nope, didn't get that hand right. Okay, rub it out, draw it again. Does that look right? No, that doesn't look right. Rub it out, draw it again. Fussing over those tiny little details. That's why it's possible to write backwards. It's like I'm not even thinking about how the sentence works or the, the sequence works. Instead, I'm really just thinking about each individual line and what kind of voice it has. Each tiny little drawing, all of those little details, and I'm just solving those minute problems one by one as I move backwards through the page. It would be nice to think uh, that people could feel that when they were holding one of these objects. I mean, my copy of The Grot has been... Uh, floating around the house getting muck all over it. The spine's been cracked a few times and the ink on the cover started to flake away so you can see these sort of bend lines. Both my kids are in the book, so whenever somebody comes over, they pick it up with their gross, snotty hands and, uh, and find the page where they're in. The book's getting bashed around. It's definitely been in the toilet. It's not a precious object. It's an object that's supposed to interact with people. You've been listening to Pat Grant on the Sydney Review of Books podcast. Pat is a comics maker, writer and teacher. He draws comics in his back shed in Austin Mere. His acclaimed first graphic novel, Blue, was published in 2012. The Grot is out now. Pat's website is patgrantart.com 
and you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Pat Grant Art. We'll also put his links on the SRB podcast page, sydneyreviewerbooks.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode with Pat Grant, I suggest you also listen to our episode on Writers at Work with Andrew Brooks and Laura Elizabeth Woollett. Together, they'll be discussing Laura's essay, Award Rate, which was published by the SRB. This is an essay about the time Laura didn't win a big ticket literary prize. Like, no one really talks about the elephant in the room, which is what the money would mean to them individually. You're not supposed to say, I would really like this money. I'm the SRB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Our producer is Alison Chan, ably assisted by Alice Desmond. Elena Godwin did the sound design and mixing. The SRB is produced at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Create New South Wales Digitise Initiative. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work, the Baramatical people of the Darug Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and the struggles for justice are ongoing. We acknowledge all the traditional custodians of the lands this digital platform reaches. Thanks for listening.